Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 39. A War of Words. Wicked women who, turning back to Satan and seduced by the illusions and phantoms of the demons, believe and openly avow that in the hours of the night they ride on certain animals. Would that they alone perished in their perfidy without dragging so many others with them into the ruin of infidelity. For a numberless multitude of people, deceived by this false view, believe these things to be true and turning away from the true faith and returning to the errors of the pagans, think that there exists some divine power other than the one God. An excerpt from the Canon Episcopi. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last week we covered the beliefs of Anglo-Saxon England with a brief foray into the Norman Conquest. We saw how early Christianity co-opted existing customs, and how church writers viewed and portrayed the superstitions of their new flocks. We will continue this theme today as we look at the European continent around this time, and the difficulty the church had in establishing what constituted witchcraft and what powers its practitioners had. As Roman authority dwindled, numerous barbarian tribes raided and occupied formerly Roman regions of Europe. We've already seen the Anglo-Saxons, but they were not the only Germanic peoples to find new homes in the Empire. Vandals, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and Lombards all made their way, oftentimes with great violence, through the provinces, and founded their own kingdoms, in Italy, Spain, and Africa. But the tribes that interest us today are the ones who gave their name to the country that draws its heritage from the kingdoms they founded over a thousand years ago. The Franks. We will focus on the Franks and the empire they would found as a lens through which to examine the evolution of what a sorcerer was thought to be, what Maleficium was, and try to wrap our heads around the complicated nature of medieval theological thought. In discussing the Carolingian Empire, we get an opportunity to take a look at the official and unofficial beliefs in magic, sorcery, and Maleficium, the length and breadth of Western Christian Europe as the Carolingians directly ruled most of it, and their empire spurred the medieval renaissance that shared their name. The Carolingian renaissance led to an expansion of literature, art, architecture, and theological thought, and is one of the prime examples of why the Dark Ages is a load of old tosh. The Franks were a people originating in the Rhine Valley, a federation of tribes that repeatedly attempted to move into Roman territory in northern Gaul throughout the 3rd century, raiding the border regions as well as acting as fearsome pirates in the English Channel. Emperor Julian the Apostate, known to history as the last openly pagan emperor of Rome, allowed the Franks to reside in modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands as federati, military allies. They rapidly spread across northern Gaul, establishing small kingdoms as they went. In the late 5th century, Clovis I united these kingdoms, establishing both his dynasty, the Merovingian line, as well as his hegemony over large parts of Gaul. The Merovingians ruled and expanded their Frankish kingdoms for close to three centuries. 
but towards the end of this period, their role as kings became largely ceremonial. The real power was behind the throne of Francia, in the form of the mayors of the palace. This was a hereditary title, first held by the Pippinid family before passing to the illegitimate son of the last Pippinid mayor, Charles Martel. This was not a painless process, as the position was incredibly lucrative, and required a civil war between Charles and the supporters of his half-nephew, Theodwald, then just an eight-year-old boy. Charles was able to consolidate his rule, and as an aside, I think it's worth mentioning that upon defeating his nephew, Charles took him under his protection, rather than having him quietly killed, which would have been safer and was the expected outcome. Charles established his own dynasty, the Carolingian dynasty, Carol being the Latinized version of Charles, and began his shadow reign, which wasn't really much of a shadow reign considering everyone and their dog knew who actually ruled in Francia. Like his father, Charles took on the administration of Francia, re-centralizing authority to the capital of Paris and enforcing his will against the neighboring Christian states in the east. It was Charles that led the Christian forces at the Battle of Tours, held up as the turning point against further Islamic expansion into Western Europe. It was at this battle that Charles earned his epithet, Martel, meaning the hammer. As well as defeating the invasion force, this victory allowed Charles to expand his authority south, destroying another invading army just five years later. By now, Francia stretched from the Iberian Peninsula to Flanders, with tributary states along the Rhine. Charles's power was absolute, to the extent that when the nominal king, Theodoric IV, died in 737, Charles didn't even bother to appoint a new king, leaving the throne empty. And when he died in 741, his sons split the rulership of Francia between them, only appointing a new figurehead king two years later. In 751, Pippin, Charles's younger son, sent a message to the Pope with a rhetorical question. Who should be the king? The one with the title, or the one with the power? The Pope was no fool, and looking for an ally against his neighbouring Lombards, so he wisely agreed with this veiled suggestion, and the throne of Francia was declared vacant, conveniently ignoring the man who was currently sat in it, as he was then sent to a monastery. Pippin then became King of the Franks, and his descendants would include Charlemagne, Louis the Pious, and Charles the Fat, who would expand their dominion, reign over a golden age, and be the last Carolingian to hold the family territories together, respectively. Similarly to events in Britain, the Franks had ostensibly converted to Christianity between 496 and 506, when Clovis I was victorious at the Battle of Tolbiac against the Alamanni. During the battle, Clovis prayed for assistance from the Christian god, and after defeating the Alamanni, he converted to the Christian faith of his wife, along with thousands of his warriors. The reason for this ten-year bracket is that historians are quite unsure when the battle was actually fought, with the traditional date being 496, but with a scattering of other sources making the case for alternative years. Likewise, the sources disagree on when Clovis converted, some say he converted along with his army immediately after the victory, while others say he hummed and hard for a few years before converting. Regardless, like in England, the conversion of the king and his vassals led to a top-down conversion of the Franks, leading to a similar hybrid of Christian and pagan practices. This was 
quietly condoned by the church as a means to an end. For example, magical springs where the spirits could heal the sick gained a suitably holy background out of whole cloth. One saint or another rested or bathed or did something there that would provide an acceptable Christian veneer over the area. Local people still visited the springs for the exact same reason, but now they were being good Christians while doing it. After centuries of successful conversion, this hybridization of Christianity and paganism was showing its flaws. As successful as this approach had been, with its mass conversions of large geographical areas, vast regions of Europe that nominally followed the religious lead of Rome had their local traditions and rituals largely intact. This would simply not do, because while their medieval church was remarkably flexible, it did have a limit. By the end of Charlemagne's reign in 814, overt paganism had ceased to exist anywhere other than the eastern reaches of his empire, while the old ways were still openly followed. With paganism more or less defeated in mainland Europe, with the notable exclusion of the marauding attentions of the Magyars and the Scandinavians and the tide of Islamic conquest halted, the main threat to Christian Europe became internal heresy. Equivalating the crime of heresy to one of witchcraft was already in process when baby Charlemagne was still in his swaddling clothes. In a church synod held in Rome in 743, among other practices condemned was the act of leaving food as offerings. Initially, this was a pagan custom of giving food to spirits in return for favour, which of course the church could not condone on the basis of it being unchristian in the first place. The severity of this act is magnified when considering that the Christian church believed the spirits and gods worshipped by pagans to simply be Christian devils in disguise. Knowingly or not, those people that held to these traditions were seeking assistance from demons. This concept of leaving food out for spirits would later evolve into the fear that these supplies were left out not for spirits, but for those bands of people on their way to covens or diabolic orgies. The wording of the Synod's decree extended to those that made incantations, as well as those that took part in pagan rites, declaring the perpetrators to be anathema, which at this time meant complete separation from the church in the style of later excommunication. Black magic was gradually, over the decades and centuries, being inextricably connected to diabolism, the logic being that magic was an attempt to compel spiritual forces for the benefit of the person conducting the ritual. However, the almighty God and his angels were obviously unaffected by the attempts of a mere mortal to control them, so therefore, only Satan and his demons could be the target of these attempts, so the logic went. There is some disagreement among historians as to the extent of belief in the power of Maleficium, as well as the definition of the word itself, which varied according to the time period and the specific branch of Christianity concerned. I'll refer to this church as Roman Catholic, despite the Great Schism not occurring until the end of the period. The official attitude of the Catholic Church regarding Maleficium was that it did exist, but that mortals could not alter the world through incantations and sorcery. As mentioned before, the act of sorcery was an attempt to either bargain with the devil or bend him to your will, but the official position of the church 
was that the devil could not challenge the power of God, and therefore had no influence on the physical world. A practitioner of maleficium could not directly kill or harm someone. The devil's powers were limited to either bewitching people's minds to make them believe or do something that they would otherwise not, or luring souls to damnation through promises of earthly wealth and power. Due to these dangers, the act of maleficium was condemned by the church as both heresy as well as a sin, and its practitioners condemned as heretics, as heresy begets heresy. The practitioners of maleficium were, effectively, foolish puppets of the devil, sacrificing their souls and the souls of others for the impotent promise of power. That was the danger of maleficium in the eyes of the church, not any physical effect it may or may not have. Now, you may have noticed that I specified that this was the official line, and that I repeated the word official quite a bit. Well, Christendom was a big place, with many different cultures and some deviation in religious matters. Church degrees in Rome were often out of sync with the beliefs and actions of the clergy outside of the holy city, never mind their parishioners, and it was a source of some debate between contemporary bishops and monks on how much power the devil, and by extension, the practitioners of Maleficium, Maleficarum, had. While the official line was that the danger of Maleficium was in swaying Christian souls towards damnation, there were varying degrees of belief regarding what else the practitioners of witchcraft could do. There was also a different scene between Maleficium and astrology, and a fierce debate took place over whether astrology, that is, attempts to divine the future by the stars, was an attempt to spy on God's grand plan, and therefore heresy, or if it was just making use of the information the Almighty had provided. Certainly by the mid-9th century, astrology was in the good books, as according to Professor Geoffrey Russell, every great lord has an astrologer in his court, including Louis the Pious. And you don't get an epithet like the pious if you're harbouring people seen as heretics at your court. The Franks of the 8th and 9th centuries took part in trial marriages, where men and women would cohabit and act as husband and wife prior to any official marriage being conducted. If the unofficial union was a success, and both the man and the woman were happy with the relationship, although it has to be said it was mainly the opinion of the man that mattered here, then a true marriage would take place. If, however, the couple did not get on, then their respective families would make alternative plans. The downside being that the woman would have had her reputation damaged, and her chastity soiled for all to know. As with many pre-modern societies, it should go without saying that a woman's suitability for marriage was negatively affected by any previous sexual relations, with the most common outcomes for a woman in a failed marriage or trial marriage to be shut away in a convent as a nun, or being wed off to a vastly lower status man than she would have expected. What does this have to do with witchcraft, you might be asking yourself? Well, on top of the public shame attributed to a woman in a failed marriage or trial marriage, she was also at risk of accusations of black magic, should her former spouse have difficulty in conceiving, or his new lover fall afoul of an illness. The belief was held and broadcast at the highest levels of Frankish society. Archbishop Hinckmar of Reims, a trusted advisor of Charles the Bald, was a prolific author of many theological works, and, 
through his advice and influence, effectively steered the ship of the West Frankish state for most of his adult life. He was also a fervent believer in the dangers of Maleficium, notably writing that the former lovers of Frankish men might curse them with impotence or sickness. In his book, De Divorcio Lotheriae a Tetberge, which I am of course butchering, a text written to discuss Carolingian King Lothair II's attempts to divorce his wife Tetberge due to infertility, the Archbishop diverges to state the powers of witchcraft he implies to have witnessed personally. In De Divorcio, he makes the claim that the mistress of Lothair II was the cause of the breakdown of his marriage to Tetberge. Now, she was undoubtedly part of the reason, what with being the king's mistress and all, but Hinkmar's accusation was that she made use of Maleficium to do so. This seems a bit excessive, that is, until you take into account the bishop's close friendship with Charles the Bald, Lothair's uncle, who would benefit from Lothair remaining with the woman who could not provide him with an heir. When Lothair died without a legitimate heir, his lands were split between Charles and his brother Louis. It is not a huge stretch of logic to assume that Hinkmar published the view that Maleficium was behind the estrangement to delegitimize any attempted annulment, especially once Tetberge took refuge at the court of Charles. Without an annulment, Lothair could not marry his mistress and legitimize his bastard son by her, and so Hinkmar's patron benefited. According to the Archbishop, the abilities of Maleficarum ranged from predicting the future through the shoulder blades and livers of animals, as well as performing incantations with, among other things, bones, coals, ashes, facial and pubic hair, snakes, snail shells, herbs, reels of thread, and mystically coloured clothes. With these varied ingredients, and presumably while wearing the mystically coloured clothes, witches were able to cause the aforementioned impotence in married men, cause discord in an otherwise happy marriage, shapeshift into animals and other people, and put themselves and others into a drug fueled trance. Hinkamar recites a tale in the same volume of a man, besotted with a beautiful woman, who meets with a sorceress to ask her to grant him the woman's affections. The ritual that takes place involves the sorceress writing a letter to the devil, the man brandishing the letter in the night, and then meeting with the devil and renouncing his faith in Christ by signing a contract, literally making a deal with the devil. The woman indeed falls in love with the man, but is in the process of becoming a nun. Out of guilt, the man admits his sin, and the pact with the devil is broken by the church and the girl freed. A nice happy ending, with no one losing their soul or being dragged to hell like we heard last week. Archbishop Hinkmar was a high-ranking figure in the church, as well as the right hand of the emperor, and he openly espoused the belief in the physical powers available to the worshippers of the devil. Hinkmar is an example of the more extreme beliefs from this period, but while he may be at the far end of the belief spectrum, he is not alone. Throughout the 8th, 9th and 10th centuries, a number of religious authorities warned of the danger posed by Maleficium, although not always giving credence to the more fantastical claims shown by Hingmar. The 813 Synod of Tours, a council of bishops and clergy brought together to debate matters of theology, warned that all magic was sourced from the ancient enemy of mankind, the devil, 
and at the Synod of Paris 16 years later, the infamous passages from Leviticus and Exodus, that no witch be allowed to live, was used to justify giving the king the right to punish those that gave their loyalty to Satan rather than God. As an aside, it also stated that the punishment should be severe, but it does not specify if by severe it means exile, torture, or death. We are not yet at the point of regular institutionalized witch burnings. It is only in the 11th century that someone is first executed by the authorities for heresy. Although, of course, as we saw last episode, witches had been executed in Anglo-Saxon England before then. However, there is evidence of extrajudicial killings of accused witches, which we will touch on later. Moving on, in the same year as the Paris Synod, the Carolingian Empire, Louis the Pious, was warned by bishops that, quote, evil people of both sexes had sought the devil's help in working evil upon others, end quote, with the Synod granting him the blessing of the church to punish these evil people. Around the same time, the Archbishop of Mainz, in modern Germany, wrote repeatedly on the danger of demonic worship and witchcraft, and beseeched the Christian kings of Europe to crack down on their heresy, lest God's kingdom on earth be destroyed, and the abbot of Prom Abbey in Regino stated that the wicked were practicing magic by diabolic incantations. These examples are helpful, both for giving us an insight into the fears of the Frankish clergy, as well as highlighting how Maleficia was transitioning from outdated pagan rituals into full-faced demonic worship in the eyes of the church. While the church had always asserted that paganism was the worship of false gods, demons disguised as spirits, Maleficia was the known and intentional dealing with the devil. However, there remained strong theological and legal arguments to the belief in the very existence of witchcraft, not counting the previous official position that Maleficium existed in a limited form. Our confusion comes from defining what an individual or a law meant by witchcraft, magic, and sorcery, and so we have bishops seemingly announcing their belief in something that was considered by some church leaders to be heretical to believe in. The arguments against the existence of witchcraft were many, and made by some of the most influential people in early Christian Europe. For example, Saint Boniface, patron saint of Germania who spearheaded the conversion of the pagans in the eastern regions of the Frankish Empire, taught his flock that believing in witches was unchristian, a pagan custom they would do well to abandon. Salic law, the law codes of the Franks that remained in place for centuries, made special reference to the crime of falsely accusing others of witchcraft, although it is debated whether this meant that lawmakers considered there to be genuine accusations of witchcraft to differentiate from, or if all accusations were considered false due to the crime not being possible. In addition to this law, another statute declared that to accuse a woman of witchcraft was slander, on the same severity as calling her a prostitute, and was punished by a fine. Later in the 8th century, during the conquest of Saxony by Charlemagne, the king imposed strict new laws on the population in an effort to maintain control over his new, and rather hostile, subjects. Grouped together as the Lex Saxonum, or the Capitulary of Saxony, these laws prescribed the death penalty for refusing baptism as Christians, for attacking the church or clergy, and for partaking in pagan customs. 
Among the pagan customs forbidden by pain of death was believing in cannibalism, which was a supposed method of Saxon witches, and executing suspected witches, because witches did not, in the eyes of Charlemagne, exist. Interestingly, the law makes reference to the crime of burning suspected witches alive, decreeing that to burn a witch alive, quote, was a pagan custom, end quote. Poor Charles would be rolling in his tomb if he saw the 16th century. In the 9th century, Bishop Agobard of Lyon railed against the idea that humans could influence the weather, and the Canon Episcopi, a church law authored at some point in the early 10th century that we heard an excerpt of from earlier, decreed that anyone believing that people could ride animals or change shape were heretics and infidels. Priests across Christendom should, quote, preach with all insistence to the people that they may know this belief to be in every way false, end quote. So how do we reconcile these two contrasting points of view? How can the church both condemn the belief in witchcraft while also lamenting its power? The answer comes down to something as simple as personal belief combined with clever wording. As mentioned previously, Christendom was a large and rapidly growing place, and what were considered perfectly acceptable beliefs in the countryside of Francia would have skirted the bounds of heresy in Rome. Christendom was not as theologically united as it would first appear, but the key thing to notice about the decrees and laws we addressed was the way they were worded. For example, the bishops that warned Louis the Pious of, quote, evil people of both sexes seeking the assistance of the devil to harm others, end quote, doesn't actually suggest they had received this assistance, just that they had sought it out in the first place and committed heresy for doing so. The Synod of Paris advocated the king punish those who gave their loyalty to Satan rather than Christ and used biblical passages to support this course of action. But again, the crime being committed is owing allegiance to the devil rather than God. Of all the warnings from clergy of the dangers of maleficium, the vast majority were concerned with heresy and apostasy, rather than the destruction a maleficarum could cause. Hinkmar is a notable exception for the detail he puts into his accounts of the physical power of the sorcerers, but he does not deviate too far from the official church view that maleficium was in the main a psychological influence when discussing the fate of Lothar II's marriage. In Hinkmar's treatise, it is the king's mistress's use of maleficium to sour the marriage, rather than poisoning Tetberge or physically influencing the pair that is the cause of the breakdown of the nuptials. While other parts of his writings were clearly arguing for the existence of powerful, world-altering maleficium, we can assume from Hinkmar's favour both at the court of Charles the Bald as well as in Rome that his beliefs were either acceptable at the time or otherwise not held against him. Others would not be as fortunate, and the official stance remained that the belief that witchcraft had power over the physical world was itself heresy. Historians disagree whether it was the growing strength of the Catholic Church politically, the weakening of secular rulers, a growing prevalence of heretical doctrine, or some combination of the three that led to an increase in the quantity and severity of heresy accusations. Whatever the reason, as heretical sects were crucified in orthodox writings, if you'll pardon the pun, they inevitably accrued reputations of having committed inhuman rituals involving incest and the blood of innocence, and using these rituals to make pacts with the devil. 
Reformists, Waldensians, and Cathars, three of the most widespread heresies of the early medieval and high medieval ages, were all accused of these acts. If you remember back to the episodes on the Knights Templar, so were they. The link between witchcraft and diabolism, built over the course of the early Middle Ages, would rear its head in future centuries. Until the 11th century, Maleficium was considered primarily a secular crime to be punished by secular authorities, despite those in the church arguing of its spiritual dangers. We can see this with the Synod of Paris. Whether it was due to the political strength of the Frankish monarchy, or the disunity of the church itself, the Synod recommended and pushed for Louis, the secular prince, to take on the burden of punishing Maleficarum, rather than calling for such cases to be tried in church courts. Many European states had law codes directly descended from Roman laws, while others used Roman laws as inspiration for their own legislation. As we saw in episode 19, The Eternal City and the Evil Eye, Roman laws set down harsh penalties for the peddlers of witchcraft, with various types of execution being the staple. However, many of the laws had a limited view of what defined witchcraft compared to the medieval world that now made use of them. Newer concepts of diabolism and heresy merged with Roman and biblical definitions of witchcraft which demanded the death penalty. Heresy was a crime under most Christian rulers, but until the 11th century those accused of heresy were treated leniently in comparison to future centuries. Heretics would be reprimanded multiple times, being kindly asked to just recount their incorrect beliefs without any threat of torture or death. This state of affairs would last into the new millennium, and while it was certainly a more humane way of approaching disagreement, there are multiple instances of heretics recanting, then reversing their choice, being excommunicated, only to recant again, only to backpedal once again after whichever scolding bishop had left the building. This isn't to say that there were no repercussions for committing heresy in the early medieval Europe, but they usually went as far as fines or exile to a slightly more uncomfortable monastery. This peaceful method of trying to resolve theological disputes would not last, with an official execution of heretics taking place in 1022 in Orléans in France. Thirteen people were burned alive that day, and in the coming centuries countless others would share the same fate. That is where I will leave off for today. As always, thank you to my patrons, the Hammer of the Witches, executed today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, my Inquisitors Elaine D and Trish G, and all of my demonologists and theologians. They're all great people, and you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. Besides supporting the podcast financially, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, or wherever you find good podcasts. Or tell a friend. Word of mouth is very important in helping the podcast grow. You can always drop me an email at witchcraftpodcast at gmail.com, or message me on Twitter or on the Facebook page, at Hist of Witch and the History of Witchcraft Podcast, respectively. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.